I'd like to ask you a question. It may sound a bit odd, but it is an honest question, I promise. Why are you a Christian? Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? If you're like me, that's a question that you probably don't think about very often. Or maybe you've never really thought much about it. But it is important. Because the fact of the matter is that there are a variety of reasons that people choose to be Christian, and they are not all equal. In fact, if you're not following Jesus for the right reason, then you may at some point choose not to follow him at all. And that might sound a little severe, but that's exactly what happens in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. In the beginning of the chapter, we are told that Jesus is being followed by a very large crowd of people. Thousands are responding to him and wanting to follow after him. But by the end of the very same chapter, a large majority of them have left him entirely. And he is left asking his closest 12 disciples if they too plan to abandon him. It's really a bewildering turn of events and it makes you wonder where am I in this story? Am I a part of that number of people who start off following Jesus but abandon him in the end? Or am I one of the few, one of the 12 who continue to follow him when all the others have left? And what's the big difference between these two groups anyway? Well, to answer that question, we need to begin by paying attention to how John describes this large crowd that's following Jesus around. And the first thing to note about them is that they do, in fact, seem to have some kind of faith in Jesus. Because at the very beginning of chapter 6, John tells us that this large crowd, which includes thousands of people, that it's following Jesus around and that they're doing it because they have seen the they have seen the signs that he was doing, the signs with his healing miracles. So this crowd, they're not a bunch of skeptics. They've seen the signs that Jesus is performing and they're intrigued. And then they get to see an even greater sign. John mentions that it's the time of the Passover and the crowd doesn't have anything to eat. And so Jesus performs another miraculous sign. He feeds them. And after they are fed, they're intrigue seems to turn even more clearly into actual faith. Because how do they respond? What does John say is their response in verse 14? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Although they don't specify exactly what prophet they're referring to, it's pretty clear that the prophet they have in mind is the one that Moses had spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when he had told the people of Israel that what the Lord had said to him about a prophet that was to come. I will raise up for the people of Israel a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And of course, the crowd was right. Jesus was that prophet who was to come. What's more, not only do they rightly perceive that Jesus is the prophet whom Moses has foretold, they also seem to have grasped that he is also their rightful king. And Jesus knows it. He knows that they want to make him their king. 
And you know, you would think that this would cause him to celebrate. After all, isn't that the whole point of doing the signs to encourage people to believe in him? And isn't that exactly what the crowd is doing by recognizing him as the, the foretold prophet and the king who was to come? Well, you might think so, but apparently this faith that they seem to be exhibiting, it's not real faith. And instead of celebrating with them, Jesus withdraws from them and he goes to be by himself. But why? What went wrong here? What exactly is the problem with this crowd's faith? The missionary bishop, Leslie Newbigin, he says that their problem was a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. This is not faith, he says, but unbelief. They have not understood who Jesus is. To say Jesus is king is true if the word king is wholly defined by the person of Jesus. It is false and blasphemous if Jesus is made instrumental to a definition of kingship derived from elsewhere. So the issue, you see, the issue isn't that people are wrong in thinking that Jesus is the promised prophet and the king to come. The problem is that they simply misunderstand what that means. And this becomes clearer as the story continues. The day after Jesus withdraws from the crowd, they find him again. And they find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they ask him why he left. And Jesus' reply to them, he tells us a lot about their attitude. He says, I tell you truthfully, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not interested in understanding who I really am. You're just following me around because of what I can do for you. You just want more food. And this isn't real faith. This is, this is just a bunch of people interested in what Jesus can do for them. Of course, we shouldn't be too quick to judge this crowd. After all, they're not the only ones who are interested in what Jesus can do for them. About 400 years after this incident, a bishop named Augustine was giving a sermon about this passage, and he drew attention to how the attitude of that crowd was present among Christians in his own day. Many people, he said, many people seek Jesus so he will do them some temporal good. One man has a business venture. He seeks the intervention of the clergy. Another is oppressed by someone more powerful. He flees to the church. Another desires intercession between himself and someone with whom he has little influence. So another and another. The church is filled with such people. And this attitude that Augustine's talking about, it's very prevalent today as well. How often do you hear Christians promoting their faith because of all its practical benefits for health and relationships and family life? I regularly come across articles on Christian websites, where people are touting the finding of some recent scientific study to show how church attendance is linked to, to lower levels of depression or to more stable and satisfying marriages or better outcomes for children or healthier social relationships or, or longer average lifespans. Uh, one study that I read even suggested that people who attend church regularly will experience better sleep. 
Although, evidently this is disputed because I saw another study published a year later that suggests that, in fact, atheists fall asleep faster and sleep longer than either Baptists or Catholics. Now, of course, none of these benefits of religious life and church attendance, none of them are bad things. Just as it wasn't a bad thing that Jesus fed all those thousands of people that day. But what happens when material benefits like these begin to become our primary reason for being a Christian in the first place? What happens when the reason that we follow Jesus is because of what he can do for us? Well, then, like that crowd, then we have a problem. So how does Jesus correct this crowd's misunderstanding? Well, interestingly, he begins by reminding them of how God had fed their forefathers bread in the wilderness and how that same God, his father, is the one who gives the true bread from heaven. And then he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, if you remember, Jesus had said something pretty similar to the Samaritan woman. When he was talking to her, he spoke not about bread, but about water that could give life. Uh, but she didn't seem to understand what he was getting at. She just thought he was talking about some water that would forever quench your physical thirst so you never had to drink again. And this crowd, they also seem to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They still think he's talking about their physical hunger, about some kind of divine food that God will dispense whenever they're hungry. So you can understand why they're a little put off when they ask Jesus to give them this bread that he's talking about. And in response, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, this really sets the crowd off. At this point, they think that Jesus must be advocating some kind of cannibalism, and they just abandon him. And it's tragic, really, because they seem so enthusiastic at first when they were talking about how Jesus was the awaited prophet and they wanted to make him their king. And then by the end of the chapter, they are confused and they're angry, and they're no longer interested in following Jesus. What went wrong? You might think that this is just a problem of miscommunication. And Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and this crowd, they were just too literal-minded to understand what he meant by that. But I don't think that is why they left. No, what prevented them from following Jesus, it wasn't just that they didn't understand what he was saying. What prevented them from following Jesus is that at the end of the day, they didn't really want the life that Jesus was offering them. And don't get me wrong, when Jesus talked about a bread that would give life to the world, they perked up. They were very interested. But that's because they thought that he was talking about life as they already knew it. What they wanted was the life they already had, just with a longer lifespan and, and better food and, and less work and you know maybe a happier family life. But that's not what Jesus was here to offer them. The life that he was offering was, as he puts it in verse 47, eternal life. Which means, as we'll read later on in chapter 17, intimacy with and enjoyment of God himself. 
This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In the long run, that's really the only kind of life that will ever truly satisfy. Because, as St. Augustine so memorably said, we have been made for God, and our hearts will be forever restless until they find rest in Him. And sadly, the crowds at the Sea of Galilee that day, they didn't understand that. They didn't understand that their desire for more bread, that their hunger, their desire to have a strong king, that all of that was really just a consequence of having a restless heart. They thought that all they really wanted in life was some good food and personal security. So they didn't know what to do when Jesus offered them the one thing that they really needed, but they never really knew that that's even what they wanted. And I hate to admit this, but I see a lot of myself in that crowd. I know that what I want out of life often doesn't line up with what Jesus is offering me. And I know that this sometimes means that I miss Jesus entirely because I'm so focused on pursuing things that I think will enrich my life that I forget about this gift of eternal life. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I'm glad to belong to a tradition that emphasizes sacramental worship. As I mentioned in the first session of this study, the Gospel of John is the only one of the four New Testament Gospels that does not include an account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. But John does include this teaching of Jesus, talking about eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And a lot of Christians over the centuries have seen in these words here a reference to the sacrament of Holy Communion. And I think that's very fitting because, as I said, the problem with this crowd and the problem often with us is that there are so many times where we don't desire the right things. We need to have our desires, what we want, trained. And that's exactly what Jesus does every time he gathers us together in worship around the Lord's table. As a Christian philosopher, James K.A. Smith puts it, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to follow him, then you can't be like that crowd. You can't be distracted by pursuing life as you know it. You need to have your heart retrained so that you will want the only thing that really matters life, eternal life, true life, the life that we can experience if, as John says, if we believe in Jesus for who he really is.